know, there was a song that was uh, written several years ago by, it was on an album that Waterdeep, if you've heard of that group, um, collaborated. It was called Enter the Worship Circle. And there was a song on that album. The opening line says, many men drink the rain and turn to thank the clouds. And kind of the insanity of that, right? Many men, many men drink the rain, drink the rain that falls from heaven, and then they turn and thank inanimate clouds. Uh, Thanksgiving, which is a holiday that almost everyone in America celebrates, they certainly want their day off work if they get one. <laughs> It assumes that there's someone to give thanks to, not clouds. It assumes that there is a giver, someone who gives good things. And so I hope along with, you know, your tradition of traditional foods you ate and, and fellowship and, and the good time you had with family and friends, I really do hope that, and if you haven't, you, it's not too late, you can do it today. We ought to be thank, giving thanks every day, right? I hope that you took some time to reflect and give thanks to God. I think most Christians, just almost kind of a knee-jerk reaction, if somebody asked if you're thankful, you, we would say, well, yes. Um, do, you, do you have gratitude in your heart? Yes. But then, then the question is, well, do you give thanks to God? Do you actually open your mouth and give him thanks? Naturally, we are ingrates. We focus on, we think about the things that we don't have, we don't get to do, and so forth, how hard life can be. And it is a gracious work of God's Spirit to help us turn away from ourselves and turn outside of ourselves and see the bounty that God has poured out upon us and to give him thanks. So I hope you have taken some time to do that, or if you haven't, that you will. Uh, Thursday morning, Thanksgiving morning, I was out walking my dog, and it was kind of a brisk morning, and, um, but uh, I, was, I was thanking God for all the normal things, right? For, uh, for Christ and salvation, for my wife and my children, and... Uh, for, you know, generally good health and so forth. And then something else came to mind that, that I'm thankful for, but it, uh, it, it kind of landed on me like, like a ton of bricks. And it was a verse out of Psalm 16 that um, I've read many times, I've thought about before, with some depth, I think. But it was so powerful that morning. Psalm 16, verse 3, this is King David. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. As for the saints, that's talking about God's people, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. 
And I just was overcome with thankfulness and gratitude to God for you. You're the saints. And listen, this is not seeing everybody and everything with rose-colored glasses. We can all point out faults that we have and so forth. But it was almost like God just, he, he showed me what he thinks of the saints and what we ought to think of, of the saints. And so I praise God. I thank God for you. And I thank God for this gathering on the Lord's Day, gathering for prayer. I thank God for fellowship over coffee. I thank God for how he's gifted you and how you are used by Christ to build up his body. It is, it is a gracious gift to be part of a church, to be part of a body that is functioning as a body and seeking to grow in how they function as a body. So you are the excellent ones. And I deeply, deeply delight in you. Um, well, today is the first day of Advent. Advent uh, starts four, four Sundays prior to Christmas Eve. And, and so we're going to do some Advent or Christmas-themed messages the next four weeks leading up to our Christmas Eve service. And so we're going, we're going to take a look at Micah chapter 5, which is a prophecy concerning Christ. It was the prophecy that, uh, that the Jewish religious leaders uh, quoted when Herod wanted to know where the Messiah was to be born. They went to Micah chapter 5 and said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. When Jesus Christ was born... A host of angels appeared to some unassuming shepherds, keeping their flock, guarding their flock, tending to their flock, and they announced the long-expected Messiah. You guys remember that? Behold, I, I come, I bring you good news of great joy, for unto you today is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And after they announced this, it says that the glory of the Lord shone around them and a bunch of, a multitude of angels worshipped and sang the words, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. Amazingly, an, an army of angels, a host of angels, comes from heaven to this rebellious sinful, dark world in rebellion against God, and rather than announcing war, they announce peace. Advent is a time for, for adoring and embracing the Prince of Peace. It's a time of the year in which Christians have traditionally given attention to kind of a twin focus, on the one hand, they've looked back to the first advent or first coming of Christ, the birth, right, the nativity, why Jesus came and so forth. But they also look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And we, we sang about it this morning. Looking back in adoring faith at Christ's coming, looking forward in eager longing. But there's also the present in which we long for Christ to come and make his power known to us. I love the, the words of joy to the world, where it says, uh, let every heart 
prepare him room. That's, that's right now. Let every heart prepare him room. Because our hearts are full of things, right? John Calvin said our hearts are idol factories. Right? Things that we love that we shouldn't. Right? Loves that are out of order. Let every heart prepare him room. Well, these verses in Micah chapter 5, I think, can help us this morning. The prophet Micah was given the unhappy assignment of pronouncing God's judgment upon his covenant people, the Jewish people. Both the northern and southern tribes, Israel and Judah, were living in gross idolatry and evil, and they were provoking the righteous judgment of God. But despite the tone of looning judgment for their sin, Micah also looks forward to future restoration and blessing. God had promised to raise up a king in the line of David who would sit on David's throne forever. Not just for a long time, but forever. And God would keep his promise. God is a promise keeper. And so this prophecy of Micah is one of the most precious Christmas prophecies in the Bible as it points to the coming Messiah, the son of David, the true David. We see familiar words and themes, right? In a small, insignificant town called Bethlehem, something enormous, something huge is happening. Bethlehem's this little town, right? And something huge is happening in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Ephrathah is another term for Bethlehem, and it means fruitfulness. So in this town of Bethlehem, or Ephrathah, something, this was a fertile place for something significant to happen. The, The song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, It's not my favorite Christmas song, but there's a line in it that I, I, I really have come to love and think about often at this time of year. And I think it gets it right. Speaking of Bethlehem, it says, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The hopes and fears of all the years, past, present, future, met in Bethlehem. What was happening in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? Well, a great ruler was born. When the wise men came from the east, really they were magi, they were magicians, they were pagan astrologers. When they came from the east to Jerusalem, they made it clear they were searching for the king of the Jews. They were looking for someone. He was the king of the Jews. And so they sought out this king. Where is he at? And Herod, when he heard the news, it says he was deeply troubled and decided, decided he needed to find out. So he called the chief priests and the scribes and they said, Bethlehem, that's the place where the Messiah is to be born, quoting this very prophecy in Micah chapter 5. I want to lean into one phrase in particular this morning from this text, because I think it all leads to this. 
It's verse 5, the first part of verse 5. It's the last phrase in the text that was read for this morning. It says this, and he shall be their peace. And he shall be their peace. This ruler who's a shepherd, who's a divine person, and yet a person born of a woman, he shall be their peace. For the faithful among Micah's audience, these words had to have been received like the spring rains after a long drought. Right? It was like the fresh wind of hope of a future shepherd king who would usher in peace. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as we know, now 2,000 years later, meant peace on earth. And so Advent is a time for us to enter into the peace of Christ. Notice it doesn't say that Jesus, or that, that this Messiah, that this ruler will give peace. It doesn't say that he will give them something called peace, but rather that he will be their peace. In other words, it's not that he gives something outside of himself, but this ruler, this shepherd, gives himself, and he is our peace. And it's the kind of peace that we need. We talk a lot about peace and joy and love and so forth this time of year, but quite frankly, for many, even many who go to church and profess Christ, this time of year is anything but peaceful, joyful. It only amplifies, the, for many, the lack of peace that we have. The busyness, the loss that we remember, the trial we're walking through. He shall be their peace. This peace is not something that comes apart from Christ. Jesus gives us himself as our peace. In other words, if our peace is found in Christ, it is as durable and strong and present as Jesus himself is. He shall be their peace. For you and I, those who belong to Christ, he shall be our peace. The biblical idea of peace is much fuller, much broader, much deeper, much more profound than our typical idea of peace, isn't it? Typically, if someone just kind of spouts off, man, I need some peace and quiet, they're thinking, get the kids, or, or maybe I need to leave the house, okay? You stay with the kids in the house, I'm out of here, I need some quiet time. Or I need a vacation, or I need a day at the beach or something. The biblical idea of peace is much better than that. Because, listen, we get that. None of those things are wrong. That's good and right. And, but it lasts momentarily. The word translated peace in our text this morning is a word that I have no doubt many of you have heard. It's the word shalom. Shalom is a word that is pregnant with meaning. It's a word that volumes could be written on, I have no doubt, and probably have been written on. It means to be safe 
and sound and healthy. It signifies a sense of well-being. It carries the meaning of rest and fullness and prosperity and absence of agitation. It can mean a state of calm without anxiety or stress. It sounds like the exact opposite of what the world with all of its glittering distractions offer us, right? David Guzik, who's a pastor and commentator, says, Shalom is, I love this, it's the gift of precious well-being. It's a gift, and it's a precious gift of well-being. Of course, the biblical understanding of shalom or of this peace is realistic as well. It, it doesn't mean that the, the complete absence of difficulties and trials, obviously. John MacArthur says, Shalom is not just a rest in one's own heart away from troublesome circumstances. The biblical concept of peace does not focus on the absence of trials. Biblical peace is unrelated to circumstances. It is a goodness of life that is not touched by what happens on the outside. You may be in the midst of great trials and still have this peace. Now, this may sound too good to be true. Even in this world, even in this this world with never-ending COVID variants and insane politics, even in this world living in this country that is splitting apart at the seams, and even in your world as perhaps you're going through your own private hell right now, yes, this peace can be yours in Christ, and it can be real and lasting. Our text teaches us that Christ, this Messiah, is our peace, but we need to look to the past, and we need to look in the present, and we need to look to the future, past, present, and future. First, we need to look to the past and God's great redemptive work through the Messiah. Verse 2, we see that Jesus came according to the Father's plan to carry out the Father's mission Of making peace. Verse 2 says, For from Bethlehem shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. God the Father is speaking here through the prophet Micah, and he says, This one that's going to be born in Bethlehem, he shall come forth for me. And when God says, for me, I think he means for his purpose or for his mission. He shall come forth for me on a mission with a purpose to accomplish something. Galatians 4.4, which I think is a great parallel text for this. It says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. 
Jesus said many times in the gospel something along the lines of, I have come to do my Father's will. I only do what my Father says to do. I only say what, what I hear him say. Jesus came on a mission. And the mission of the Father was that Christ might achieve reconciliation between a holy God and rebel sinners. The mission of the Father was that Jesus Christ might achieve peace with God. And so, before we go any further, do you know peace with God? I mean, do you really know peace with God? When you are alone and it's just you and God, is your heart racing or is it well in the presence of God? Because if you don't know peace with God, quite frankly, drop everything. Because if you don't or you aren't sure, nothing else even matters if you don't have peace with God. You must have it. And you must not be a mere pretender who says you have it. Because either you are at peace with God or you are at war with him. And the Bible is very clear about this. Either you have accepted his terms of peace or you're still an enemy combatant on the battlefield against God. Christ must be your peace. You will have no sustained peace based on your own moral performance, being, thinking you're relatively a good person. You won't have sustained peace based on your personal effort to be godly or a good Christian. Now, don't get me wrong. We should put forth effort to grow in sanctification, no doubt, but that will not give you peace with God. You will not have sustained peace based on your successes in life or your personal courage because you're a manly man. It won't give you peace with God. God. You and I must lie down on the bed of peace that God has set for us, and it is Jesus Christ alone. Peace offered through Jesus is something the world cannot give you. Of course, the world can offer you momentary respite from stress. You can take pills to help with anxiety and so forth. It can give, the world can give you amusement. It can entertain you. But you cannot get the peace that matters, peace with God, except through Jesus Christ. So this was the reason Jesus was sent into the world. The baby born in a manger came on a mission to win for us peace. The incarnation of Jesus Christ or the, the eternal Son of God putting on flesh, right, becoming a full human being was a means to his work on the cross. And so when we look at, when we think about that cute little baby in the manger, we can't stop there, right? It takes us to, because we live on this side of it, it takes us to the, the boy and the young man and the man who lived a perfect life on our behalf and died an atoning death in order for us to be rescued. 
Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Colossians 1.20 says that God made peace by the blood of the cross, Christ's cross. Romans 5.1 makes it even more explicit how this peace affects and transforms our relationship with God. When it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. God does not make peace by letting bygones be bygones. Right? The phrases that I just read, the blood of Christ, the phrase his cross, the phrase through our Lord Jesus Christ are massively important because it cost Jesus his life for you to have peace with God. Jesus Christ, though he never sinned, took our sin upon him and our guilt upon him. And thus, Jesus Christ was treated as though he were sin itself. And he did this in order that you and I, though full of sin, might be treated as though we've never sinned by God. That's something to give thanks for, right? What a Savior. He has removed the enmity between us and God. And so this takes us back to the first coming of Jesus. We look back to his birth, his incarnation, and his mission to go to the cross and die for his people. But actually, our text even takes us further back than that. It certainly takes us back to the birth of Christ and to this ruler who was born, but it actually takes us further back than that. Amazingly, Micah says this was part of of an immutable plan from God in eternity past. Verse 2 goes on to say that this ruler who was born, it says his coming forth is from of old. And then it says from ancient days. What does that mean? Certainly this ruler, and we talked about this, is a divine person, of course. And we celebrate and sing about the fact that the eternal Son of God took on flesh and became man. But it says that his coming forth was from of old. He came forth, but this coming forth was from a long time before he came. Literally, when it says his coming forth was from of old, from ancient days, it literally means before days were. Or we might say before days existed. Before creation. This plan for the Son to be sent into the world to make peace between God and sinners through his cross was in the heart of God before the world was even made. Amazing. It's amazing. Before a thing called days even existed. Now, some theologians have have described this as the covenant of redemption where God the Father and God the Son planned this out and the Holy Spirit planned this out that the Father would send the Son into the world 
and save sinners. R.C. Sproul describes it this way. He says, the covenant of redemption is a covenant in as much as the plan involves two or more parties. This is not a covenant between God and humans. It is a covenant among the persons of the Godhead. God the Father planned to send the Son to redeem. I find it deeply comforting that, that when Adam and Eve plunged, when Adam plunged humanity into sin, God, it's not like God said, oh my goodness, plan A is not going to work now. We've got to come up with another plan. But somehow in God's, God's perfect wisdom and understanding, this is plan A. It was to send Christ into the world to bear the sin and guilt of you and I. Listen to how Charles, what Charles Spurgeon uh, commented on this verse, on this, this ancient days. He said, The Lord Jesus had goings forth for his people as their representative before the Father, before the throne, long before they appeared upon the stage of time. It was from everlasting that he signed the compact with his Father that he would pay blood for blood, suffering for suffering, agony for agony, and death for death on behalf of his people. It was from everlasting that he gave himself up without a murmuring word. Jesus never complained about it. That from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot, he he might sweat great drops of blood, that he might be spit upon, pierced, mocked, rent asunder and crushed beneath the pains of death. His goings forth as our Savior were from everlasting. By looking back to the coming of Christ and even, even before that to eternity, his birth, his cross, we see that he is our peace with God. Amen? We see that he is our peace. He shall be their peace. He is our peace. But we also look to the present. Look at verse 4. This great ruler who was born in Bethlehem, it says he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. I think the New American Standard says, and he shall arise and shepherd his flock. He is not a shepherd who's sitting idly by. He stands and cares for us. He's a shepherd who cares for his flock. Of course, the word shepherd here is a verb, but shepherding is the activity of a shepherd, right? Shepherds shepherd their flock. And that's what Christ does. He is our shepherd. He cares for it. He tends. He feeds. He keeps safe. And he leads to pasture. That's what a shepherd does for his flock, which is why it says, and they shall dwell secure. They shall be safe. Now, of course, the safety is not in the way that we often think. Jesus says, I give you my peace, but in this world, you will have what? Trouble. 
I give you my peace, but in this world you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So how do we dwell secure now because of our good shepherd? Well, I think there's at least two ways that I think of. One is his presence with us at all times. Christ is with us. Christ loves his people. If you are in Christ, think of this. If you are in Christ, he loves you. He's, he's very attentive to detail. He loves you and cares for you and tends to you and for you without fail. Psalm 23 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You know what it says after that? Why do we fear no evil? Why, do, why could David say this? Because he was so strong? Because he had learned the power of positive thinking? No. Because he said, the shepherd's with me. Because you're with me. When you and I go through the valley of deep darkness, whether it is actually the valley, the shadow of death, like you are on death's door physically, you're about ready to die, or you just go through a valley of great darkness and the darkness doesn't seem like it's ever going to lift. We can go through that unafraid and at peace because our shepherd is with us. Somebody's laughing back there. That wasn't supposed to be funny. There's never a day. There is never, ever, if you belong to Christ, and that's an important question, if you belong to Jesus, there will never, ever, ever be a day where you could say, surely he is not with me today. Because he himself has said, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Of course, he's with us in a different way now than he was with his disciples for three years. He walked beside them. He, they ate together. They sat across a table physically together. And he's with us in a different way than that. But amazingly, Jesus said it, he's with us in a better way than that. He is with us by his spirit within us. You guys remember when Jesus said that? He says, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. John 14, 18, Jesus said, I will, I will not leave you as orphans but I will come to you. And I believe he means by the Spirit. But, but there's a second way Jesus cares for us and causes us to dwell securely now. And I, I think, honestly, this is one that we don't think about. We think, okay, I want, I want to know that, that my shepherd's with me. But this is one we probably don't think about. And I, I think it's just it's part of the cultural, Christian culture in America that we've probably breathed the air of for so long. But Jesus causes us to dwell secure now because he is powerful to keep us saved and safe to the very end. 
giving us an eternal security. Now, again, that phrase, eternal security, has been hijacked. People hear that, and maybe, maybe positively, and it's not a positive thing, but they think, well, yeah, I, I have eternal security because I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was six years old, and I got my ticket punched. It's been hijacked. What I mean by eternal security is that Jesus Christ, those that belong to him, through faith in him, he will keep to the end. He will give them the strength. He will guard them. He will protect them. He will feed them. He will clear out. He will defeat their enemies. He will keep them saved to the very end. Through trial and tribulation, He is mighty to do that. Notice it says he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And then it goes on to say in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. In other words, who can stop him? Who can stop what our Lord Jesus Christ intends to do? There's no one who can. And so we dwell secure. We have peace now because of the eternal security that we have from our good shepherd. When you think of how can I know if I'm secure in Christ and our tendency is we begin to look inside. Do I have enough faith? Is my faith strong enough? Have I done enough good? Well, if I have a bad day today, man, I don't feel secure at all. But we need to look to our shepherd. We need to look to him and find our security in him. He is strong and powerful to save and to keep. Listen to what Christ says, our good shepherd. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus, here's what John 10, 27 to 30 says, Jesus received a people from the Father. He came put on flesh, lived, died, rose again to save them, and he will keep them safe forever. Now some, maybe you've thought this, maybe you would say this, maybe you would question this. Well, can, I understand maybe the devil can't snatch us out and someone else can't, but can we jump out? My first question is, would you want to? Uh, Is that your goal? But no, for those who truly belong to Christ, he will keep them. And I I love this. He will keep me. Uh, This encourages my faith to know that my Savior will keep me from shipwrecking my faith. If it was up to me to keep myself, 
I would not have much confidence. Remember Jude 24 and 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He shall be their peace. He shall be our peace because he is a present shepherd who cares for us. And finally, we look forward to the future when Christ will usher in perfect, undisturbed peace. David prayed this earlier. We look forward to that day. Verse 4 says, And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Of course, we understand that Christ is great now, right? I mean, it's not like, this isn't saying that he's going to increase in greatness because Jesus Christ is eternally God. He can't increase in greatness. He just is, right? He is the I am God. He always has been. I think what this is pointing us to is how his greatness will be manifested in the earth. We don't see this yet, right? We don't see the greatness. We don't see the greatness of Christ manifested from one corner of the earth to the other. We don't see it yet, but we most certainly will. At Christ's second coming, his greatness will know no bounds. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's pretty much every square inch, every square millimeter, right? The glory of the Lord will cover the earth and will be as wet. The earth will be as wet with the glory of the Lord as the oceans are wet. He came the first time in humility, born in a cattle stall. He will come again in glory. He came the first time to offer terms of peace. He will come again with a sword and wage war on all those who rejected his peace treaty. But for his people, for, for you and I, I love the verse in 2 Thessalonians that says, he will come uh, and slay the lawless one with the sword in his mouth or something like that. And then it says, and, and to be marveled at among those who have believed in him. When he comes again, if we have the privilege of being alive still, when he comes, we will marvel at his coming. Talk about jaw hitting the ground. We will marvel at his coming. For those who belong to Christ, he will usher in a universal peace. And then, then there truly will be perfect, unending shalom without any conflict or without any causes of conflict. It will all be totally and completely removed. Of course, this is our great hope. Jesus Christ will set everything right. We sing the song, um, I Heard the Bells, I think is what it's called. There's a line in there that says, the wrong 
shall fail and the right prevail. The wrong shall fail in the end. We see wickedness and evil and high places and low places all around us, but Jesus Christ will put everything right. The images that the scriptures give us are quite frankly staggering, and we could go to many places, but there's one that I just find, like, it's hard to even picture this, but in Isaiah chapter 11, it talks about wolves and sheep frolicking in the fields together, and lions and calves taking a nap together, and bears and lions grazing in the field together, and little children sitting next to a cobra's den Of course, as much as I love the picture of peace in the animal kingdom, I'm much more concerned about two-legged creatures like you and I living in peace and knowing this peace. It's what I long for more than anything. And there will be this peace for his people. It will be glorious. Psalm 46, 9 and 10, I think, gives us a picture of this. It says, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. Won't that be something? This great ruler who was born in little Bethlehem, he he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I will be great to the ends of the earth. A president cannot usher in such peace whether the current one or a past one or any future one only the true shepherd king of peace the Lord Jesus Christ can usher in this kind of peace and the promise is he will be great to the ends of the earth this is more than just personal peace just I, things, are, things are good with me and my little surroundings this will be to the ends of the earth Isaiah chapter 9, another prophecy of Christ, says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so, he will be your peace. He will be our peace, perfect, undisturbed peace without end. And so, I ask you this morning, are you resting in this shepherd, king of peace, right? The one who came, born, this this eternal son of God who became a man, born in a manger, who grew up and lived and died in our place for our sins and rose again, who sits at the Father's right hand right now, interceding for us, shepherding us, and who's coming again Are you finding peace in him? Is your peace in him? This shepherd, this king, this king of peace will be yours, quite frankly, if you'll have him. If you will stop stiff-arming him, if you will say, yes, 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 on your terms, Jesus, on your terms, peace. It must be on his terms, though. He's a shepherd king who is to be submitted to and trusted implicitly. 
He is a redeemer who alone is worthy of our total faith. He is, a great, he is great and will be to the ends of the earth and is to be worshipped and lived for. Worshipped and lived for. And to those who come to Christ on his terms, and you might say, well, I got saved a long time ago. Are you living in the peace that he offers? Those who come to Christ on his terms, for them, he shall be their peace. He shall be your peace. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for...